All right. Good morning, Kelly. Hello. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining. So this is episode five of the Live Good, Live Well podcast. And we have Kelly Lynch, a licensed, sorry, licensed clinical social worker, a certified personal trainer, a nutrition coach, and a life coach from Connecticut. That's a mouthful. It is. (laughs) If you would like to expand on uh, a little bit of intro about yourself, that would be great because I feel like I've exhausted my vocabulary right there. (laughs) Sure. So um, I have two separate businesses because being a a therapist and being a coach are really different things. So um, as a clinical social worker, my my practice is in Connecticut and um, the, the only folks that I can work with because of how my license works are in Connecticut. And um, therapy is typically something that's very process oriented, where you really talk about, you know, how you feel, and work on identifying, well, why do you feel that way? And then kind of figuring out what are you, what are the next steps? And how do you want to work on either tolerating something that's going on in your life, if it's not something that can be immediately rectified, or work on fixing it over time Um, versus coaching is really action oriented. And there's typically not a lot of processing that goes on with coaching um, simply because uh, right now coaching is something that's not a federally regulated field. So anybody can be a coach, uh, which is really cool. And it creates a lot of ease of access to services that sometimes people might not be able to get otherwise. Um, so the coaching industry is super exciting, just really different than the therapy field. Um, and as a, as a coach, uh, what I really like to do is work on uh, work with people, women especially, on how do you engage in your voice and really feel like you can move through the world in the most authentic and meaningful way as you possibly can and truly live life on your own terms, physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. That's beautiful. So before we get into what we're, the meat of what we're going to talk about, when should people find a therapist? And when should people seek a life coach? So I think that the coaching part is, is kind of easier to speak to. Um, when seeking a life coach, it's more about you've already identified what what the issue is, and you know why it's why whatever the issue is is an issue, and you're really just looking for guidance on how to kind of move through that part of what what life is for you. Versus therapy is more abstract. Um, a lot of the folks that I see in therapy are kind of some will come in already knowing kind of why they feel the way that they do. Um, but have no idea how to kind of how to work through that. Um, and then other folks will come in saying, I just feel anxious and sad and I don't know why. Um, so therapy is much more kind of let's let's dig through what you're feeling and figure out how you got there in the first place versus coaching is um, most of the folks who seek out coaching already know why they're there. They just want help to figure out their next steps. That's a great distinction. Thank you. Sure. All right. So today we're going to talk about, let me, let me say this first. Kelly will be doing a series with us on this podcast, thankfully, because she is a wealth of knowledge, experience, and expertise. Uh, but today specifically, we're going to talk about um, divorce and 
parenting after divorce and finding your voice and your your independence in that post-divorce um, period of time. So Kelly, I'll let you kind of set the set the stage here. Um, what happened first, and kind of what was your what was your experience and process during the time going through a divorce after your marriage with sure. a, with a little one? Sure. So uh, I've been I was married for five years. I was with my ex husband for for just around ten total, um, and I, you know I think going into marriage, um, everybody signs up to get married once. Like you don't, you don't sign up for marriage with the idea of like, Oh, Hey, in five years, I'm going to be divorced. Uh, and that's really not what it's about. Right. So, um, when I, when I was married, it was, it went from okay to unhealthy to now it's really toxic and there's some really scary and really bad stuff starting to happen. And so I needed to figure out how was I going to kind of extract myself from that situation um, with a man that I now shared a child with. Uh, My daughter was one and a half when uh, I decided it was time to go. And uh, it was tumultuous on a good day. Um, So I got divorced. I, I had left my marriage in October of 2014 and the divorce was finalized for how things go in Connecticut relatively quickly. Uh, we, we were finalized in April of 2015 and um, it was a challenging um, legal situation to be in, not something that I've, I, I ever felt prepared for. Um, and after that, it was really just a matter of kind of moving through not only the grief process, but then figuring out, well, what, what's next? And what is life going to look like now that I'm in this new role as a single person, but now also as a single parent? Wow. So what did you do next? What happened after April 2015? A lot of moving, mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly. So I, um, we had, in the process of the divorce, we had sold the, the house that we owned while we were married. And I moved in with my parents for eight months, which was an incredibly humbling process to be in your 30s, living with your parents again, literally and figuratively hitting the the reset button on life and with a kid. Uh, And it was not a position I had ever expected to be in. Um, And so so I was with them for eight months. And then I bought my my first home outside of outside of the divorce and lived in a condo for two and a half years and recently purchased my first house as a single person which is super exciting and um, I've been in this home now for just shy of a year congratulations thanks you know, it's been a journey a fun it journey really has been yeah, yeah. <laughs> so from going you mentioned going into a marriage, not thinking that you would ever be out of it, essentially. Um, what went through your mind as, as call it getting over that hurdle? So going into something, thinking that that was a lifelong commitment to then realizing it wasn't the, it wasn't what you thought it was going into it and realizing that you needed to get out of it. What were the 
I guess the steps um, along your, your thought pattern when you realized this has to end, this is not right for me, it's not right for my daughter, et cetera. Yeah, so the marriage had been, from my perspective, the marriage had been kind of unraveling for a couple years prior to to me actually leaving. And um, there's, I've had a lot of people in my life who have been really forthcoming with their opinions, as people can so often be, uh, and has, have very candidly shared that they felt like I stayed a lot longer than I actually should have. Um, to the point where at the end it was it was physically dangerous for me to stay and I had to I had I was in a position where I had to just take off Um, and I think I stayed probably six months longer than I actually should have Uh, but that two that overall two-year time period where where it was really unraveling I I feel pretty strongly that I I was already in a mindset where some somewhere in the back of my head I knew this wasn't going to be something that was going to last. And I needed to stay long enough to know that from my end, everything that I could have done to save that marriage and repair it, that I had done, I had done a hundred percent of my part, mm-hmm. knowing that it's never a hundred percent on one person or the other, that that's a shared responsibility to kind of tend to what that relationship needs to look like if it's going to be healthy. Um, when I walked away, I knew I needed to be in the position of saying I did everything that was in my power to do to to make it right. And whatever was left over wasn't stuff that I could take ownership of because it was his. Mm-hmm. So that was really the first step. Uh, and then in the process of leaving, the first thing that I needed to deal with was just the grief of the reality that it was done. Well, so how do you think that this has impacted your, your relationship and your daughter either way, good or bad, indifferent, et cetera? Um, I would say for, for my daughter, especially it's, it's so far, it's been kind of a neutral thing. Um, where she was so young when I left, like I, like I said, she was a year and a half. Um, so this is really all she's ever known, um, at a year and a half, a child developmentally isn't cognitively aware enough yet to be able to retain those kinds of memories. Mm -hmm. So, um, anything that she was present for while, while he and I were still together, she just, she would not retain that information at a memory level, um, in terms of her awareness. So, it's up until now, it's been pretty neutral for her that this is just her norm. Um, At this point, she'll be six in February. So she's starting to ask some questions now of that, like, why don't, why don't mommy and daddy live together? And uh, I'm trying to navigate that as it comes up. And sometimes it's, she comes up with some really good questions. So sometimes it's a little challenging. Yeah, she's intelligent. Yeah, she really is. Um, But it's okay so far. And in terms of my relationship with my ex-husband, I would say, you know, we're not friends, but we do get along for the sake of needing to raise a child together and be the best influence on her that as co-parents that we could possibly be. So now I, we're at a, actually a really good place in our relationship where we get along quite well. Uh, and I, I feel pretty strongly that we're, for the most part, pretty respectful of each other's individual lives, mm-hmm. where 
we don't ask about things that are in each other's business. And there's a, a degree of privacy that's very respected, but that we're really on the same page in terms of how to parent our child. Sure. I think that's a good place to be in. Absolutely. If someone was listening to this in a similar situation that you were in, what would be your advice, whether their relationship was um, just just at a dead end, everything that could be done had been done, mm-hmm. or it's, it's a much more serious um, and urgent situation where one or both or the entire family is in a physical predicament and they need to get out for their physical safety or mental safety or emotional safety, um, what would be your, your general advice to somebody that is in what John Kim would call an, ex- an expired relationship? How sure. do they get out? How do they, how do they go through the logistics of moving forward and finding a place if they don't have their parents, you know, for that, that um, safety net? Yeah. So first, before anything else, if there's issues of safety, it's one of the biggest things. And is, and especially if I found in my own experience as well, and um, clinically, some, some of the, the women and men that I've worked with in the past as, as a therapist who have been in similar positions, it is so challenging to be in a place where your head is telling you one thing and your heart is telling you something completely different. It, you know, when you're with somebody that you care so deeply for that you had this idea about like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this human being and I'm totally devoted to them. Your heart is going to be much slower to, to catch up to where your brain might be of it's time to go. Um, like I had said earlier, you know, when I was in still in my marriage and at a point where I needed to extract myself from that, my head was there of it's time. And my heart was constantly doing the, yeah, but here's all this other stuff that's really difficult and kind of murky to navigate through. So the first step that I would say to anybody is to really just be aware of the difference between the two of what's your head telling you? What are you logically in a black and white format no as fact and then what's your heart telling you and what's the difference between the two uh really knowing that our emotions can tend to play with us if you're not in a healthy place is incredibly important because your emotions we're human beings are impulsive creatures by nature that's the way that we're designed so your emotions want to lead the way And sometimes that's just not what we need to do. Sometimes we need to lead with fact of, I'm not safe, it's time to go. Mm -hmm. So then the next step that I would suggest to somebody who's in an unsafe situation after that is start, start looking on the internet and identify, you know, what are resources that are in my local area. I was in my, in my position, I was fortunate enough that I didn't need to do that because I had family that I could lean on. Um, But there are, always, always resources around domestic violence shelters. Um, in Connecticut, we, we are able to call 211, which is our local information line. Um, and that should be a resource that is available in various formats nationally. Uh, and, you know, like I said, 211 here, here in Connecticut, we, we're able to call that and say, you know what, this is my situation, what do I do next? And um, there's always people on the other end of that who are able to answer really specific questions or can set you up with emergency services. 
Um, sometimes they'll even have the police come out immediately if it's kind of this life or death situation. Hopefully um, nobody who's listening has to be in that, um, but they can, they can hook you up with resources instantly. Uh, and if they can't get you in touch with a resource immediately, they can get you on call lists um, where other people will start reaching out to you. Um, and then I would say to anybody, if they're in a physically dangerous situation that you need to go, whether or not your heart is telling you that it's time to go, you need to go. And, um, and to just make sure that you're safe and you can deal with the grief afterwards because there will be grief to deal with mm-hmm. agreed in my experience my head has been the one to tell me it's time to go before my heart because our hearts yes. you know they want to do the kind of the martyr thing in some situations but our head is is our head takes over and kicks in and I'm not scientifically trained in this this is just my own experience but our head mm-hmm. kicks in and says you have to get out you know, that's our, that's our survival mechanism in place at that yeah. point saying you have to leave. It's time to go um, because yeah. you're in danger to whatever mm-hmm. degree. So um, fully agree. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a battle. And I think some people stay far too long because there's that battle and they try to ration themselves out of it or rationalize themselves out of it. And, you know, then something worse happens and it's just this cyclical, um, kind of dive into into something worse it typically doesn't get better unless something major changes yeah um there's this you know very simple saying if nothing changes nothing changes and in in cases like this um you know something major has to has to occur one person has to leave or something has there has to be an intervention of some kind absolutely so how did you coming on to the the call it the happier side of it how did you step into being a single parent and getting your own footing and independence i mean you're you're quite accomplished by any measure and you know from the outside looking in we think wow kelly is just she's a powerhouse she's just like killing it but it always doesn't feel that way you know when you're the person that um is doing all of the stuff so how do you how did you find your motivation to do all of this stuff and then follow-up question is how do you keep everything together and organized you have you're running two businesses you have multiple certifications um you're a fantastic mom you know you're you seemingly have it all together how do you do that I fake it really well on certain days (laughs) (laughs) so um gosh I there's for sure, some days where I, I don't know what I'm doing. And there there's some days where I, I truly do feel like I have to fake it through the day because sometimes you, you just have to fake it till you make it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's other days where I wake up and I feel like I got it and I'm, I'm good. I know what I'm doing and I feel super confident. And, you know, the thing that I would say to anybody is that, you know, if you look at someone and your immediate impression of them is, wow, she, she or he or, or they have it all together. Trust me, trust me that they're, they're struggling just as much as anybody else. Uh, and they're trying to 
figure out their footing just as much as anybody else. And every day is different. Um, I'm going through in my, in my house, I bought a project house and it has truly been a project. It's lived up to what I thought it would be. And I'm renovating my kitchen right now. And there's, there's been days in the last few weeks since I started this where I've woken up and said, what did I do? Oh my God, I'm really overwhelmed. And then you have to continue to be a parent and you have to continue to be a business owner and make sure that you're not making poor choices. And there's so many different things to be accountable to that some days it really feels like a lot, but then other days you wake up with just this, I just wake up with this sense of gratitude of that this is this is what my life gets to be and that's so cool. Um, but to get here, the, I had to work through the negative first before I could get to the neutral, before I could get to the positive. And so it, to back up in that, the biggest things that I really, really realized that I needed to look at before I could look at anything else were my grief and my shame and then my anger. Um, I come from a very traditional Roman Catholic family where you say yes once in regards to marriage and then you just figure it out uh, and no matter what gets thrown at you you stay that's your commitment that was your decision you're accountable to it and you have to own it and my situation didn't turn out like that and my choice was not the right choice uh, so I was intensely ashamed and felt like a failure for being the only one in my family who's divorced. And without kind of processing through that and understanding, well, why did I feel like that in the first place? And how was I identifying myself as a result of feeling shame? Uh, I never would have been able to then work on my grief of the, the fantasy of my happily ever after was burst. Uh, and then I wouldn't have been able to work on my anger towards my ex-husband for not being able to step up to what I wanted him to step up to. So that all needed to happen first. And that was really raw and, and really painful. Um, but then I moved to a place of neutrality of just, okay, this is what life is going to be. Let me figure out how to manage that in a way that feels functional from moment to moment and then day to day. And as that neutrality kind of became my new baseline, then there was slowly and, and in some ways very subtly uh, this happiness that grew out of that of now today I'm in this place of just gratitude that there's so much that is so much better and healthier and to know that I'm able to live a life that's on my terms where there's there's so much control inside of that for really healthy, positive reasons. It's just an awesome place to be. Um, so I would say to, to anybody kind of moving through a major life transition, whether that's divorce, chronic illness, any, anything, um, that you have to process through that, that negative, gross stuff that we just don't want to look at in order to find a place of neutrality and then grow your happiness from there. Absolutely. That's a beautiful way to put it. Um, I'm a huge fan of looking at the gross stuff. The mm -hmm. sooner the better in most cases. And stuff, some things process and they come up in due time, right? But sure. some things we just, 
we know that they that we've stuffed them down we know that we're avoiding them and the longer that we we purposefully don't acknowledge those things that are kind of haunting us the worse it gets and it's just manifests into this like you know basically just like a, an emotional virus i would call it and the sooner that we can we can deal with that and work through it and sometimes it's not pretty um, sometimes you might need to just sit and cry or scream in the shower or you know um, write it out or go to therapy or you yeah. know we all process it in different ways but the sooner that we we kind of just let that stuff out and we we face it the faster that we can move on to what you're calling you know just a place of gratitude and and you sound you can hear your happiness like in your voice and so I think there's a lot to be attributed to that you know you've come um, from a very challenging situation to the other side of it. And I think you're such a strong example of what can be if people step out of what they think they should be doing. Um, Thank you. You, know, you mentioned your very traditional family. A lot of people still come from very traditional families that have all these expectations on them. Um, and the sooner that we can break out of that and step into our own, the sooner that we can find our own happiness and move forward and not be held back by these, you know, familial ropes. For sure. And, you know, I think that you, you'd mentioned expectations and I think that that's just such a good point. Um, but, you know, one of the, the biggest lessons that I learned in now evolving, what, what is my happiness going to look like and feel like, like, how am I going to experience that on a day-to-day basis? At this point, it's all about boundaries and expectations. And, so one of the things that I say to my therapy clients quite frequently is that, you know, boundaries and expectations are two very different concepts, but they have to go hand in hand. And I look at expectations as a way for us to kind of formulate, how am I going to think about this thing or this person or this environment? And then boundaries as how am I going to protect myself and take good care of myself inside of that? whether it's a relationship or a situation that I'm in. Uh, And so with expectations, I would say to anybody, you need to ask yourself three questions. Is this whatever, whatever it is in that moment um, or whoever it is in that moment, is this reasonable? And when I ask myself, is this reasonable? I'm really trying to just reflect on my own thought process to make sure that I'm grounded in a place that makes sense and that I'm not so far out into left field that I'm, like thinking about silly stuff. Um, so is this reasonable? I'm reflecting on my, my thought process. And then is this realistic? When I think about what's realistic, I'm no longer thinking about myself. I'm thinking about this other person or situation or environment. And, you know, if it's a person that I'm reflecting on, I'm thinking about, well, how do I understand this person as they show up in the world? And what I'm asking for from them with this expectation, are they willing and able to commit to that? So being realistic is much more so about that external view of people, places, and things. Um, and then is it achievable? So if I, if I come across something where I know I'm being reasonable about an expectation that I have and that I believe something could be realistic based on willingness and ability, but I'm not necessarily thinking about achievability in logical sense, then it's probably not going to be achievable. Or if I'm 
limiting the the capacity of that person because of something that I'm doing, then I'm setting them up for failure. Or if I'm thinking about something of I want it instantly when maybe it's not an instant thing, then it's also not going to be achievable. Mm-hmm. So we really have to reflect on kind of what's the framework for what that looks like or, or what it needs to look like. So is this reasonable, realistic and achievable becomes really valuable. They're really valuable questions in terms of how to formulate a, a healthy expectation. And then boundaries can kind of evolve out of that, of that, you know, just like I said before, how are you going to take good care of yourself in the context of that? Yeah, that's a lot to um, for most people to consider that that may not even think of boundaries, mm-hmm. expectations and taking care of themselves because they're just in situations where they're just having to survive and react. Sure. And I think even to take five minutes to consider um, a more, uh, I would call that like a like a top down approach where it's like a bit more you're looking from a bit of a higher perspective, kind of mm-hmm. looking in on something, just taking sometimes it might be a, a very small action to set a small boundary. It might be saying no um, yeah. to something you had always said yes to out of default. And that mm-hmm. sort of goes into a whole other topic of living in the present and making um, decisions out of an awareness instead of out of habit. Yeah. Um, but again, that's a whole other topic that we could probably um, spend an hour on, on talking through. Definitely. Um, so what would you, what, let me let me think of a way to phrase this if your daughter were in this situation say in 20 or 30 years what would be what would you do differently than what people around you did what would have helped you in the present when you mentioned you know people had their opinions about um how long you should have stayed versus you know leaving earlier what would have helped you more and what would you like to see if your daughter were in that situation in the future? So if my daughter were in this situation that I was in, the first, the very first thing that came to my head was that I wouldn't judge her. And that I go to that place first, truly, because that was the biggest thing that I constantly felt um, that I was judged for my choices and judged for how much I had pulled back from everything and everyone in my life as a result of how how toxic the relationship had become Uh, and that if I had felt less judged I truly in my heart of hearts believe that I would have been more willing to ask for help sooner Mm. yeah you know I think that when when we feel like people are passing judgment on us it it so quickly shuts us down from wanting to have difficult conversations Uh, and it's it makes a already difficult situation that much harder yeah it keeps us it keeps us playing small and feeling like we're alone absolutely um, versus once you ask for help once somebody asks us for help most of the time I don't know what the percentage would be I would guess 90 percent of the time the people are going to say yes. We innately want to help people, mm-hmm. um, but we also need to be asked for it in most situations. You know, we don't want to, again, I think that goes into judgment too. We don't want to do too much or too little or be perceived as um, being in somebody's business. But I think when we ask for help, most of the time people are more than 
more than willing to help other people. Yeah. And so I think that's something that maybe we can break through as a society in the next few years to, to sort of bring down those, those walls of judgment and allow people to just be seen as they mm-hmm. are and, you know, move forward from that. I totally agree. And I, I really hope for that as well. All right. Final two questions. And again, I am grateful for, um, for your expertise, for you sharing. I know some of this stuff is not easy. Um, our future topics will be a bit lighter, um, but also a bit more, um, a bit heavier too. Uh, sure. In the future, we've got anxiety, um, which is, um, I think it, it, it hinders a lot of people from doing a lot of things that um, would probably make them very happy. Um, but we'll talk about how to get through that both on a practical level and um, you can go into the science of it if you, if you feel so inclined. Okay. And then um, we'll talk about some other things in the future and future episodes. All right. So final two questions. How do people find you online? So I, I'm on Facebook um, as the Unapology Project. And um, online, my therapy practice is www.turningpointwellnessllc.com. And um, again, that's for folks who are residing in Connecticut, just because of how my my license as a social worker works. Um, And then as a coach, folks can find me at www.theunapologyproject.com. And that is for anybody and everybody. Awesome. And I would recommend anybody and everybody to go visit. Yay. You have some really cool stuff out there. Last question. What do you want to leave people with? Whether it's um, somebody that's had a session or multiple sessions with you, or just a quick interaction with a stranger, say somebody in line grabbing coffee in front of you. What do you want to leave people with? Feeling empowered. You know, I think that we we get in our heads so much and we can overthink things just to the nth degree. It, the way that our, our society is set up today and the way that so many of our relationships work and we start just feeling crappy about ourselves because of it. And, you know, if we're, if I am able to influence anyone in the, the positions that I'm so blessed to be able to hold it would be to to just hold up a mirror to them and show them how cool they are. You know, human beings are just fantastic creatures when we allow ourselves to rise to the occasion. And if we if we give ourselves the space to do that, there's so much empowerment and joy that can be inside of that experience. So I would love for people to just feel empowered and proud of themselves. Rock on. I think you do that well. Uh, Thank my, you. My friendship with you over the last couple of years has been nothing but that. So that's definitely something that, that radiates from you. I'm so glad. All right. Kelly Lynch, thank you very much. Again, this was episode five of the Live Good, Live Well podcast. And we will have Kelly on in the future very soon, yeah. hopefully. I'm excited. All right. Thank you so much, Kelly. No problem. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.